Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell was sentenced today for her role in helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually abuse underage girls. We hear from attorneys on both sides. More than 50 people found dead in a tractor trailer in Texas. It's part of a suspected human smuggling operation and part of a tragic trend. The Biden administration is touting an action plan following the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. What are they considering and why are some saying one of the moves could violate the law? Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is facing backlash over comments he made in the recent abortion ruling, comments about a gay marriage case. We find out what the rest of the court is planning to do about it. More primary races are underway tonight. Governors in New York and Illinois face the voters as Republicans vie to take back the majority in Congress. Nationwide, we've had over a million people switch from Democrat to Republican. And former Atlanta Braves star Freddie Freeman shocked the baseball world when he signed in L.A. this past offseason. After visiting his former team, he fired his agent. Find out what led up to the sudden separation. British socialite Ghislaine Maxwell was sentenced today for her role in helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually abuse underage girls. Maxwell's lawyers called for a lenient sentence of five years, while prosecutors asked for 30 to 55 years. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest. Ghislaine Maxwell has been behind bars for almost a year since she was arrested at a New Hampshire estate in July 2020. After her month-long trial, the 60-year-old ex-girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein was found guilty of sex trafficking and transporting a minor to participate in illegal sex acts. On Tuesday, U.S. District Judge Allison Nathan sentenced Maxwell to 20 years in prison. When given the chance to speak, Maxwell apologized to the victims and said the greatest regret of her life was meeting Jeffrey Epstein. An attorney representing over 60 alleged victims in the case had this to say about Maxwell's apology. It was probably the closest thing she's ever come to acknowledgement of anything in her life. She acknowledged somebody else's pain, but not that she caused it. Maxwell's attorney said it's not over yet. Glenn will appeal this case, and we are confident that she will prevail on appeal. Four women testified during the trial that Jeffrey Epstein abused them and that Maxwell sometimes participated as well. Virginia Roberts Jufre did not testify at the trial, but was referenced frequently during witness testimony. She provided a written statement directed at Maxwell, saying, I want to be clear about one thing without question. Jeffrey Epstein was a terrible pedophile, but I never would have met Jeffrey Epstein if not for you. For me and for so many others, you opened the door to hell. And then, Ghislaine, like a wolf in sheep's clothing, you used your femininity to betray us, and you led us all through it. Convicted pedophile Epstein reportedly committed suicide shortly after he was indicted on federal sex trafficking charges in July 2019. Jason Perry, NTD News. And now to a case of some tragic deaths. Authorities announced Tuesday that three people are in custody after 51 suspected illegal immigrants were found dead inside a tractor trailer near San Antonio, Texas on Monday night. The city's police chief said the case was the deadliest human smuggling incident he could recall in the city. The nationalities of all the victims are still unknown. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. It appears to be one of the most deadly recent incidents of human smuggling along the U.S.-Mexico border. The fire chief says they found 16 people alive, including four children. He says they were suffering from heat stroke and exhaustion and were taken to the hospital. The patients that we saw were hot to the touch. They were suffering uh, from heat stroke, exhaustion, uh, no signs of water in the vehicle. It was a refrigerated tractor trailer but there was no uh, visible working AC unit on that rig. Police say a person in the area heard a cry for help around 6 o'clock Monday evening. The fire chief says crews arrived minutes later and found the bodies. The police chief says they have some people in custody, but they were not found with the truck, and their involvement is not yet clear. We have three people in custody. We don't know if they are absolutely connected to this or not. 
There have been a record number of illegal crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border in recent months, sparking criticism of President Biden's immigration policies. Texas Governor Republican Greg Abbott tweeted, These deaths are on Biden. They're a result of his deadly open border policies. They show the deadly consequences of his refusal to enforce the law. Officials count more than 14,000 search and rescues along the U.S.-Mexico border since October. That's about 1,000 more than the total for the last fiscal year, with more than three months to go. Biden official Alejandro Mayorkas, who heads Homeland Security, responded to the truck deaths on Twitter. He tweeted, I'm heartbroken by the tragic loss of life. And he called human smugglers callous individuals who have no regard for the vulnerable people they exploit and endanger in order to make a profit. Mayorkas said ICE is investigating what happened. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. And on the Hill, a dramatic testimony came out of today's House January 6th committee hearing. Cassidy Hutchinson, a top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified in front of the committee. Hutchinson says Meadows' deputy told her of an altercation that took place inside former President Trump's vehicle on the day of the Capitol breach. She says Trump became angry, tried to grab the steering wheel of the vehicle, and lunged toward his head of security. This was allegedly after security officials told Trump that he couldn't go to the Capitol. Hutchinson also says Trump told officials to let the protesters into the Capitol. Trump reacts to the testimony on Truth Social, saying her fake story that I tried to grab the steering wheel of the White House limousine in order to steer it to the Capitol building is sick and fraudulent, very much like the unselect committee itself wouldn't even have been possible to do such a ridiculous thing. Trump adds that he hardly knows Hutchinson. And now to Biden, whose administration today rolled out an action plan on abortion access. It comes as pro-abortion advocates urge stronger action and as pro-life groups say what the administration is considering violates the law. And today's Iris Tao has more. Announcing what's called an action plan, Health Secretary Javier Becerra on Tuesday unveiled steps the Biden administration will be taking following the Supreme Court's ruling on Roe v. Wade. At HHS, we will leave no stone unturned. All options are on the table. Those actions, he says, include ensuring the privacy of those seeking abortions, training more clinicians in family planning, and expanding access to abortion pills. But one potential move is stirring controversy. Becerra says the administration is considering using taxpayer money to pay for transportation for women seeking out-of-state abortions. Once we tell you exactly what we believe we are able to do, have the money to do, we will let you know. But until then, what I can simply say to you is every option is on the table. The idea is being pushed by some congressional Democrats, but it could also violate the law. The Hyde Amendment is pretty simple. It prohibits the use of any federal funds for an abortion or for any health insurance coverage. And here's the secretary's response to the legal question over the weekend. Assisting in transportation, something that HHS doesn't typically do. Can you do that legally? Uh, Talk to me later. Uh, (laughs) While the secretary says everything will stay in the legal boundaries, Katie Glenn, the director of a pro-life organization, tells NTD that she's expecting the worst from this administration. We're absolutely concerned that the Biden administration sees everything on the table, even if it violates the actual law of the Hyde Amendment, which has been in place to make sure that we, the taxpayers, do not have to pay for abortions, except in very narrow circumstances at the federal level. Meanwhile, Claire McKinney, a professor of government and gender studies at the College of William and Mary, tells NTD she doubts the Biden administration will actually go that far. Honestly, their response is rather tepid, right? They're very slow in making these decisions. And so I would be very surprised if they made any strong or radical moves to even, you know, promote something that could be challenged in the court. And Senator Josh Hawley responded to the possibility of the move being considered on Twitter writing its legal, quote, under no circumstances. And in the aftermath of the Supreme Court's recent abortion decision, critics are up in arms because Justice Clarence Thomas wants the court to reconsider its previous rulings on contraception, same-sex marriage, and same-sex intimacy. NTD's Arlene Richards finds out if that's a real possibility. 
Justice Clarence Thomas has critics in an uproar because he said the court should take another look at a few more cases and apply the law the way it did in the abortion case. This time, the justices applied the law as written in the Constitution, which doesn't mention abortion. I asked James Burling, a lawyer at Pacific Legal Foundation, what happened in the 1973 decision of Roe v. Wade. Well, the court felt that it was important. You have to remember, starting especially in the Warren Court era, starting in around 1953, the court was very anxious to protect civil liberties that the court thought was important that was not necessarily in the Constitution. And this led to the era of the living constitutionalism, where the court said, we can't be constrained by the Constitution the way it was written when it was adopted or amended. We have to interpret the Constitution as if we were writing it today. Mark Meckler, president of Convention of the States, said this interpretation was just wrong. All in all, this was a complete and total legal fiction. So the Supreme Court just simply stepped back and said, we're not going to live within this legal fiction anymore. We're going to go back to what the Constitution actually says. Justice Thomas now wants the court to reconsider same-sex marriage, contraception, and same-sex intimacy. Burling and Meckler say it's not going to happen. Justice Thomas is just one justice saying that we should revisit the cases that deal with contraception, uh, same-sex intimacy, and same-sex marriage. But he was the only justice that said that. And in fact, the other justices, including the conservative justices, say, we're not going to touch that right now. So any case that came before the court would be 8-1 right now against Justice Thomas, whatever you think of his concurrence. Meanwhile, news reports continue to highlight what Thomas said, and critics worry that new cases will fill court dockets. Jim Obergefell, the lead plaintiff in the case that legalized same-sex marriage, expressed concern in an interview with CNN. I guarantee you there are people out there who are starting to work on lawsuits to attack our right to marry. But Meckler and Burling say the abortion case has nothing to do with the other cases. Because the majority of the court believes that those cases were decided correctly, and they say so quite forcefully in the majority opinion, in at least four different places in the opinion, they actually state that this has nothing to do with those other cases, and they have a no intent to apply this to or revisit those other cases. We had a countervailing right and interest that caused us to overturn the precedent, and that is the right of the unborn children was something that does not exist when we talk about the contraceptive rights or the right of same-sex marriage. We do not have other entities that could be harmed by the contraception or the same-sex marriage. Since publishing his opinion, Justice Thomas has been the target of verbal attacks. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And now to election news. Voters are headed to the polls today for primary elections in a few states. Republicans are eyeing which seats to flip to potentially take the majority in Congress. And some governors are up for re-election as well. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more. Illinois lost a seat for this election cycle after the 2020 census, leaving two Republicans competing for one seat. First-term Congresswoman Mary Miller is up against Congressman Rodney Davis. Over the weekend, former President Trump visited the 15th district to endorse Miller. Then this Tuesday, you need to cast your vote for a truly wonderful person, Mary Miller, respected by everybody. Mary, come on up. Come the on district up. that Mary and uh, Rodney are running in President Trump is very popular, and so in that particular segment of our state, I think it does have an impact on people. I mean, According to the nonpartisan Cook Political Report, five of the House seats in the state are winnable for Republicans. That's the minimum number they need to flip the majority in the House. There's also a Senate seat up for grabs. Democrat Senator Tammy Duckworth is running for re-election and will face the Republican nominee in November. And first-term Governor J.B. Pritzker is facing voters tonight. Illinois resident and candidate for Attorney General Tom DeVore tells us there's a chance for a Republican to take office after Pritzker's COVID policies alienated some voters. Governor Pritzker's been pretty hard on people. That We have a lot of Democrats in our state. I know a lot of them, a lot of them are my friends. 
this progressive liberal agenda that Governor Pritzker and a very small group of people that he is with have been pushing does not set well with an overwhelming number of the moderate Democrats and independents in our state. And I think it's going to have an impact this year. Another governor's race is happening in New York, where incumbent Kathy Hochul is facing two other Democrats. And to challenge the Democrats' pick, there are four Republicans competing in tonight's primary. New York Senator and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is up for re-election. He's uncontested in the primary and will face Republican Joe Pinion this fall. Colorado's Governor Jared Polis is up for re-election too, and he'll face one of two Republicans who are trying to take office. The state also has four competitive U.S. House seats on the ballot this year. And an analysis just released by the Associated Press shows that around 1.7 million voters have switched their political preference just over the past year, with 1 million voters switching Republican and 600,000 voters switching Democrat. It is important to note that historical trends do show that the political party of the sitting president tends to lose votes during the first midterm election cycle. So it is expected for Democrats to lose some seats in Congress this November. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf. NTD News. And in South Carolina, a Democratic state representative running for U.S. Senate is under fire for her campaign strategies. In an audio recording leaked to Project Veritas, the state representative allegedly talks about having Democrat sleepers run as Republicans to win local elections and requests drug money to fund her campaign. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg reports. South Carolina Democratic State Representative Crystal Matthews was recorded on a phone call with inmate David Solomon Ballard at the Perry Correctional Institute in Greenville County on February 15th. The recording was obtained and verified by Project Veritas, a nonprofit watchdog organization. Matthews is a candidate on the ballot for the U.S. Senate Democratic primary runoff on Tuesday. In the call, Matthews says Democrats need to have sleepers run in the Republican Party state elections to improve their chances. We need some secret sleepers. Like, we need, we need them to run as the other side, even though they're for our side. And we need right, them to win. Right. We need people to run as Republicans in these local elections. And this is the only way you're going to change the, the dynamics in South Carolina. Inmate phone calls are recorded, and those making the call are notified by an operator that calls are being recorded. We gotta take back some of these seats, especially in these local elections. We need a group of sleepers. Ballard was jailed in 2018 on a four-year sentence for threatening the life of Aiken County Sheriff Mike Hunt and his family, according to the state. It is unclear what their relationship is, but Matthews refers to him as an activist on the call. When we get enough of us in there, we can wreak havoc for real from the inside out. Ballard is now serving a 10-year sentence for resisting arrest and assaulting an officer. Matthews complains about how hard it is to raise money for her campaign and says she doesn't care if she obtains funding from drug money. I don't care about no dope money. Give me that dope boy money. Right. Where the duffel bag boys? Get you finding somebody in your family that don't even know you donating to my campaign and put that shit under their name. The state rep then uses racial slurs and talks about how there are different types of black people. Honestly, these ain't the same type of black people that I grew up around. I don't recognize these black guys. Matthews also says there is a need for people to take yard signs down at night while people are sleeping. She assumed state office in 2018 as a representative of South Carolina's District 117. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Today, Matthews goes up against Democrat Catherine Fleming Bruce in the primary election. The winner will run against Republican U.S. Senator Tim Scott. NTD reached out to Matthews and the prison for comment but did not hear back by airtime. And in international news, the Group of Seven Nations announced on Sunday its plans to raise $600 billion over the next five years for a global infrastructure program. They say the plan will serve as a positive alternative to models that sell debt traps. One nation criticized for these debt traps is also a major strategic competitor with the U.S., China. Earlier today, I spoke with China economic analyst Antonio Graceffo to learn more. Antonio, welcome. Hi, nice to see you. 
The G7 has launched a partnership for global infrastructure and investment, a project worth $600 billion. It's to counter what critics call the debt trap of some investments like China's Belt and Road Initiative. How successful do you think it will be? I think it's a very nice idea. I do not see it being very successful. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is tremendous. It now uh, encompasses more than 100 nations. Uh, it's valued in the trillions of dollars, you know, at least a trillion, depending upon who's counting, half a trillion, a trillion. And uh, this new initiative, it's 600 billion, but that is over the next five years from all the G7 partners. So the U.S. is putting up 200 billion, all the other G7 partners and uh, private companies as well are putting up the other part. So it's going to total six, 600 billion, which is considerably less than the Belt and Road. So I feel like it's a very good idea to give uh, viable alternatives to nations, particularly in Africa and developing countries. However, I just don't see the scale. So what are these low and middle income nations looking for? What typically winds up happening with the low and middle income nations is that they will go to the IMF, the World Bank, the Paris Club, the traditional lenders first, and they will ask for loans. And, and the, lens, the loans that are given by those organizations or given directly you know, through Japan or through, through the United States would have uh, very low interest rates, um, very liberal terms of, of repayment and so forth. If these countries cannot secure traditional financing, they will go to China. China's like the lender of last resort. They don't, they don't ask any questions. They don't ask for improvements of democracy. They don't ask for transparency, and they just give away these loans. But these loans have very high rates of interest, which is the debt trap idea. So these countries, of course, are looking for reasonable alternatives to borrowing from China. So if they could get good loans, what I would call good loans, in other words, low, lower interest rates and, and easier repayment terms, if they can get that from the U.S. to G7, of course they will take it, and they're very interested in that. Uh, but again, the question that I have is how much money do we really have to loan out versus how much China is loaning out? And what do you think is the end game here for China? The Belt and Road Initiative, basically, uh, with the Belt and Road, China comes in. They make loans to countries very often in exchange for um, rights to um, raw materials, minerals, sometimes assets like airports and, and ports, as we've seen in Sri Lanka and in various countries in, in Africa. And these loans are at very high interest rates. Chinese companies are then given the contracts, actually go in and build the infrastructure projects. So China immediately gets most of the principal back as payments for construction. But then the country is now on the hook for interest payments, which they wind up making maybe in uh, raw materials. So for China, the end game is to effectively enslave these countries, to, to have all these countries beholden to China, owing money to China, also providing China with very cheap uh, raw materials. China then takes back to China and transforms into products, which are then lower uh, in price, and they can compete on the export market. Um, these countries that are heavily in debt to China will also vote with China in the UN. So when we're asking for a vote, for example, to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, you'll notice that a lot of the countries that abstained are countries who owe a lot of money to China. So is this why or why do you think the G7 launched this initiative of theirs? Yes, I do believe this is why the G7 did this. I, I think it's two things. I mean, I do think there is a certain amount of altruism. I, I, I don't want to be, uh, you know, too pessimistic. Like, I really do believe that Americans do believe in the American values. I do believe that, that Western Europe do believe that it would be better to have a democratic world without, uh, without corruption, right? So, so I, I do believe that, that they really do want transparency and things like that. But maybe that's 10, 20 percent of the motivation. The other part of the motivation is that everyone is now getting on board and understanding this China uh, juggernaut that's just gobbling up all these developing countries. And, you know, if you look at the, um, the Pacific, uh, you look at the Pacific Island nations, you know, every one of those nations, some of them with populations in the tens of thousands, but they get one vote at the UN. And their vote counts exactly the same as Germany's vote, right? So China's going in, they've got the Solomon Islands, you know, they're going in, they've offered money to the Federated States of Micronesia if they'll sign with China rather than with us and the Free Pact of um, Association. So this is China's goal, to get as many people, many countries, as many votes as possible. It's like a campaign, like running for office. How soon do you think we could see whether the G7's initiative is working? 
Well, I think as soon as they make the first loans, that'll be a really good indication if we see what kind of loans are being made and where they're being made. Because one thing I will say about the money is that on the one hand, I'm skeptical because the amount is so small. But what I do know about the United States, when we give direct aid, for example, we gave direct aid to Pakistan that was in the millions. And China gave, I believe, in the billions or, or maybe more, maybe more than billions. Um, and the money that we gave, we did things like we revamped their logistics at their ports and it increased their imports and exports by X percent. So for just a few million dollars of investment, we made a huge change in, you know, in the country's GDP and employment, you know, and helping the people. Uh, we also invested money in like training teachers, for example, school teachers. So, you know, with a million dollars, you could train a lot of school teachers in Pakistan, you know, and get them up to a higher level. And then they're going to go out and teach a lot of children. So you get a lot of bang for your buck. So so I am hopeful that the G7, the U.S., will look at these type of investments. And I know, for example, there's a project in Africa where China was meant to build um, absolutely ridiculous, connect the capital city with the sea. And they stopped something like five kilometers short. So... The uh, you know so they have this train that runs almost to the sea but not to the sea and it's like for example okay I don't know how much it costs to build five kilometers of a railroad but I'm sure it's not terribly expensive and if you build this five kilometers of railroad it's gonna be huge because it means the ships can come in goods can be loaded on the train they'll go to the capital city and then from the capital city there's transportation to the rest of the country it'll have a huge impact you know in the long run on these countries so I'm really hoping that that's what we're gonna see we're gonna see very interesting projects that that have a lot of uh, return on investment. Antonio Graceffo, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. And now to New York City, where the Minds Festival of Ideas happened this past weekend. A gathering of influencers, philosophers, a former presidential candidate, and comedians looking to bridge the political and cultural divide. NTD was also there. Attendees' minds are broadened after the Festival of Ideas. Empathy, tolerance, and curiosity took the stage this past weekend in New York City. The Festival of Ideas brought together thinkers from across the political spectrum to make a point, says festival organizer Bill Ottman. Left, center, right, non-political, comedy, to actually prove that people with different ideologies can have mature conversations without, um, you know, trying to deplatform each other. Deplatforming, aka calling for people with different views to be kicked off social media platforms, has become more common. In 2021, undercover journalist James O'Keefe was kicked off Twitter. Twitter claimed he broke the rules. O'Keefe said they just wanted to silence him. I love that this event is goal is to create conversation, hopefully conversations that are new. The promise of real conversation brought former Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard to the event. She's been an outspoken advocate of free speech. There's so much divisiveness, tribalism, and um, uh, just darkness and hate in the country right now. And this platform that Minds has put together, I think, so importantly encourages uh, dialogue, treating people with respect. Minds.com is a free speech social media platform. It says you can only change someone's mind if you let them speak it. Ironically, given Minds' mission, an ad for the event was labeled inappropriate by Twitter. To which Minds responded, we've reached the point in society where debate is considered extremist activity. Daryl Davis, who moderated a panel on racism in America, is a strong believer in the power of debate and dialogue. I've been meeting with white supremacists. I have uh, led more than 200 KKK members and neo-Nazis out of that movement through conversation. The event was held at the iconic Beacon Theater this past Saturday. Coming up, protests sprung up across the country over the weekend after the Roe v. Wade ruling. In Los Angeles, one man was arrested for making a makeshift flamethrower. And a former Atlanta Braves star, Freddie Freeman, shocked the baseball world when he signed in L.A. this past offseason. Now, after visiting his former team, he's fired his agent. NTD's Dave Martin details what led up to the sudden separation. That and more coming up on NTD News.
30-year-old California man was arrested over the weekend during Roe v. Wade protests. He's been accused of allegedly attacking an officer with a makeshift flamethrower. Police arrested a man from Los Angeles on suspicion for attempted murder. 30-year-old Michael Ortiz is accused of using a makeshift flamethrower on a police officer. The officer had to be treated for burns at a hospital. Ortiz was attending a pro-abortion protest in downtown Los Angeles. These protests follow the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Michael Moore, police chief of Los Angeles, says that he condemns all violence against any officer. He said that individuals participating in such criminal activity are not exercising their First Amendment rights in protest of the Supreme Court decision. Rather, they are acting as criminals. The department will vigorously pursue prosecution of these individuals. A total of two people were arrested and four officers were injured throughout the weekend. Protests are scheduled to continue throughout the week. Ortiz's bail is set for $1 million with a pending court date. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And more in California news, a prominent gas provider Chevron is selling its office headquarters in the Bay Area and setting up base somewhere else in the state. It will also help employees relocate to its Texas office. Chevron is planning to sell its Chevron Park campus in San Ramon and move to a new modern lease space in the same city. A Chevron spokesman informed NTD via email that the current real estate market provides the opportunity to right-size our office space to meet the requirements of our headquarters-based employee population. The company expects to move during the third quarter of 2023. The company says it also plans to shift some jobs to Texas. It will offer its San Ramon employees an option to relocate to Houston if they so choose. Chevron, which has a 140-year history, will stay headquartered in California. It has operations and partnerships throughout the state. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. In NBA news, Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving told The Athletic he will be opting into his $36.5 million player option for next season. Irving and the Nets had reportedly come to an impasse on a new deal and were working on a side-and-trade possibility. But according to ESPN, the Los Angeles Lakers were the only team interested. The 30-year-old averaged 27.5 points a game last season, but played in only 29 games as New York City's vaccination ban ruled him out of home games for nearly the entire season. The Nets were swept in the first round by the Boston Celtics. Elsewhere in the league, ESPN is reporting that Russell Westbrook has opted into his $47 million player option for next season with the Lakers, and John Wall will join the Clippers after reaching a buyout with the Rockets. At Wimbledon, number one ranked women's tennis star Iga Swiatek won her opening round match to advance her winning streak to 36 matches in a row. That's the longest on tour since Martina Hingis won 37 straight in 1997. American teenager Coco Gauff, who lost to Swiatek in the French Open Finals earlier this month, also advanced to the second round. On the men's side, Grigor Dimitrov had to retire with a leg injury in the second set despite winning the first set. And last year's runner-up, Matteo Berrettini, dropped out after experiencing flu-like symptoms and testing positive for COVID-19. Berrettini is the second high-profile star to be out with COVID following 2014 U.S. Open champion Marin Cilic. Meanwhile, Rafael Nadal, who's won the last two majors, won his first round match in four sets. And in baseball, Philly star Bryce Harper is out indefinitely after being hit on his thumb with a 97-mile-an-hour fastball from Padres starter Blake Snell Saturday night. Harper, whose thumb was broken, will undergo surgery to repair it. The two-time MVP has been limited to designated hitter duties this year because of a UCL tear in his right elbow that's prevented him from playing in the outfield. Philadelphia is third in the NL East with a 39-35 record and won 17 of their last 23 games under new manager Rob Thompson. Elsewhere in the league, Dodgers first baseman Freddie Freeman fired his agency Excel Sports Management according to multiple sources. Freeman, who spent the first 12 years of his career in Atlanta, winning league MVP in 2020 and the World Series with them last year, shocked the industry when he signed with the Dodgers in the offseason. Los Angeles got the 32-year-old to switch teams with a six-year, $162 million contract. The deal came in March after talks between the Braves and Freeman's reps 
broke down and Atlanta then pivoted to trade for Oakland first baseman Matt Olson. Freeman reportedly reached out to teammates expressing shock at how the negotiations broke down. He and the visiting Dodgers came back to Atlanta this past weekend for the first time in what was an emotional reunion for the longtime Brave. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And this just in from Wimbledon, 23-time Grand Slam champion Serena Williams has been upset in the first round. The 40-year-old Williams was playing her first match in nearly a year. She fell to unseated Harmony Tan in three sets. And coming up, the U.S. Air Force is reactivating a squadron with F-35 fighter jets. They say this is due to China's development of advanced fighter jet technology. And as the G7 summit closes, Boris Johnson condemns the missile strike on a shopping center in Ukraine, but says Britain will not end up at war with Russia. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extremely important, but we also want to hear from the American people. So the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. The International Religious Freedom Summit kicked off in Washington, D.C. this week. The summit highlights religious persecution that's happening around the world. NTD's Tiffany Meyer spoke with the co-chair of the summit, who is also the U.S. Ambassador for International Religious Freedom under the Trump administration. Let's take a look. Sam Brownback served as the U.S. Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom from 2018 to 2021. His job was to monitor religious persecutions around the world and advise the president on U.S. policies. It's the one entity that can get enough allegiance from people and enough uh, people behind them that they can stand up to a government. And governments don't like that. Uh, wherever they are, particularly communist governments that are of atheistic, they don't want anybody practicing a faith that would mean there's a higher authority than the government. Brownback explains to NTD why some governments tend to dislike religion. Brownback says atheist communist regimes in particular have tried to eradicate religion, and these regimes have also tried to manipulate the churches. But he adds that they have never been successful. They'll be able to intimidate people for a while, but inside there's still that yearning of the soul that a person has, and they're going, there's something else here that I want, that I need, that is what my existence is actually about. And over 80% of the world's population follows a faith of some type. They're yearning, they're seeking, it's within the heart of man. And governments, uh, particularly communist governments, try to subdue that and put it down and, and uh, feed people cake. And at the end of the day, it's just not enough. The former ambassador says he believes the U.S. should do more about religious persecutions happening around the world today. You know, I, I think we have to take religious freedom seriously, and I think we have to not, now start putting economic sanctions with religious persecution. If Nigeria is going to persist in allowing uh, its Christian population to be persecuted, uh, there needs to be uh, economic sanctions until they're willing to prosecute these cases and to defend uh, the people of faith. The International Religious Freedom Summit runs until Thursday, June 30th. The speakers also feature a bipartisan group of lawmakers from Capitol Hill. And you can catch more of that interview with Sam Brownback on China in Focus coming up at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time right here on NTD News. And more on religious freedom. Multiple attorneys general petitioned to the Supreme Court concerning American citizens' rights to religious freedom. They asked the court to reconsider a ruling on harassment of Falun Gong practitioners, calling it an issue of national importance. Here's more. 23 attorneys general filed a multi-state amicus brief with the U.S. Supreme Court, upholding the right to religious freedom in the United States. 
According to a press release by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's office, the AGs are calling on the highest court to revert a lower court decision. In 2015, 13 residents of Flushing, New York, filed a complaint against the Chinese anti-cult alliance worldwide. Petitioners detailed a six-year campaign that saw more than 40 beatings, incidents of harassment, and death threats against them. The reason? That they participated in parades on behalf of the Falun Gong meditation practice, handed out related leaflets, or managed a booth with related literature. Freedom of religion in places of religious worship is protected under the Freedom of Clinic Entrance Act. But the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Court in New York dismissed the case, holding that the plaintiffs were not protected by the statute. The AGs argue that the lower court narrowly interpreted the term to mean places devoted primarily to religious worship. And by doing so, it unduly narrowed a statute meant to bar the worst acts of violence in many of America's sacred places. The brief also states Falun Gong practitioners are exactly the sort of worshipers one might expect to find safety in a statute like this. The AGs therefore found the ruling wrong on an issue of national importance that stands at the center of our constitutional tradition. Falun Gong is a spiritual practice that originated in China, but that has been persecuted by the Chinese Communist Party since 1999. In 2021 alone, over 10,000 cases of harassment and 6,000 arrests linked to the practice have been reported in mainland China. In more China-related news, the U.S. Air Force is reacting to the development of advanced fighter jets by foreign adversaries such as China. The Air Force is reactivating a squadron that includes F-35s, one of the most advanced stealth fighter jets in the world. Let's take a look. The U.S. Air Force reactivated the 65th Aggressor Squadron in a ceremony at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada earlier this month. The new unit also gets its first F-35 stealth fighter jet. During a combat training mission with other pilots, the 65th Aggressor Squadron replicated the tactics and techniques of U.S. adversaries. General Mark Kelly heads the Air Combat Command. He said they are doing this due to the growing threat posed by Communist China's development of fifth and sixth generation fighter jets. And that, quote, precisely because we have this credible threat, when we do replicate a fifth-gen adversary, it has to be done professionally. The F-35 stealth fighter jet is a fifth-generation fighter jet because it has low observable technology. The only other countries that operate fifth-generation jets are China and Russia. The aggressor program began in the 1970s to provide pilots the opportunity to train against a U.S. aggressor force. The aggressor squadron would replicate advanced and credible tactics by adversary. Colonel Scott Mills commands the 57th Operations Group. He said that using the F-35 as an aggressor allows pilots to train against low observable threats similar to what adversaries are developing. The 65th Aggressor Squadron was active from 2005 and 2014, and back then they flew the F-15s, which are fourth-generation fighter jets, because they don't have stealth characteristics. And turning now to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and fellow G7 leaders who condemned Russia's actions in Ukraine as the summit in Germany drew to a close. They pledged to impose tougher sanctions on Russia, but refused to follow the White House's request to impose a price cap on Russian oil. NTD's Eddie Aitken has this report. Prime Minister Boris Johnson said Russia's missile strike on a packed shopping center in Ukraine was utter barbarism on the final day of the G7 summit in Germany. If anything, it helped those of us who were making the case for helping to protect the Ukrainians to get that message across to some of those people who are more swing voters in the argument. The head of the British Army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, has warned that NATO members have to be prepared to fight if their territory was attacked by Russia. But the Prime Minister said he did not think Britain would end up at war with Russia. I don't think it will come to that, and clearly we're working uh, very hard to make sure that we uh, confine this to, to Ukraine. He said the conflict was not between NATO and Russia, as Moscow tried to depict. This is about uh, an invasion of an independent uh, sovereign country. Uh, it's about the, 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 the West and all the friends of Ukraine giving them the support that they need to protect themselves. 
In a joint statement, the G7 leaders promised continued tough sanctions, but drew back from imposing a price cap on exports of Russian oil, something Joe Biden's White House had pushed for. Instead, the leaders agreed only to explore the measure. Hedy Aitken, NTD News. Russia's defense ministry today denied hitting the Kremenchuk shopping center with missiles. It says it struck a weapons depot nearby and a subsequent explosion of ammunition triggered the fire in the mall. The Russian armed forces are continuing to strike military facilities on Ukrainian territory. On June 27th, in Kremenchuk, Poltava region, Russian aerospace forces used high-precision air-based weapons to strike hangars with weapons and ammunition received from the United States and European countries in the area around the Kremenchuk road maintenance machinery plant. As a result of this high-precision strike, Western-made weapons and ammunition concentrated in the storage area to be sent to Ukrainian troops in Donbas were hit. The detonation of stored ammunition and Western weapons caused a fire in a non-functioning shopping center located next to the plant. Ukraine said the shopping center was hit directly by Russian missiles and suggested around 1,000 people were inside at the time of the strike. Russia's deputy ambassador to the United Nations on Monday accused Ukraine of using the incident to gain sympathy ahead of a NATO summit and pointed to striking discrepancies in Kyiv's account of the incident. Russia has repeatedly denied targeting civilian areas during its four-month offensive against Ukraine. And coming up, one of Japan's most famous modern poets continues to write at age 90, after a successful career. For him, the poetry is a celebration of Japanese language. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Now in lighter news, the world's ugliest dog contest is back after a hiatus during pandemic lockdowns. Dog owners showcased their four-legged companions for a chance to win the title of world's ugliest dog. Let's see which pup took home the prize this year. The world's ugliest dog contest returned to Petaluma, California after a two-year absence due to pandemic lockdowns. And this year's crowned winner is Mr. Happy Face. Oh, you know, it feels, it feels incredible that there is recognition of true inner beauty and that is just amazing. So I, I don't know that I feel like I've got the world's ugliest dog. I know I've got the world's most lovable dog. Mr. Happy Face came all the way from Flagstaff, Arizona, with his owner, 48-year-old musician Janita Benali. Benali adopted her dog from a humane society after the original rescue dog she planned to get had already been adopted. They had said all of these different things about the dog, and I said, it's okay, I'll, I'll want to see him. And he came out and he just hobbled out and um, and he was the happiest, most beautiful creature I'd ever met in my life. Mr. Happy Face blew away the judges and the crowd with his gray mohawk, awkward hobble and snort-like breathing. Mr. Happy Face is wonderful. I love his crooked head, his hairless body. He's all pimply and he's just adorable but ugly at the same time. With the backing of the audience, he was the clear winner. It was so epic. It was everything I hoped for. I have been looking for, I actually have an ugly dog at home, and I left her to come and see these ugly dogs, and they did not disappoint. I love these guys. <laughs> Second place went to a six-year-old Pekingese named Wild Thing. It has more hair than body and no teeth to hold its tongue in its mouth and a 12-year-old Brussels griffin named Monkey won third place. Other contestants included a pair of pugs, a Mexican hairless named Morita, and many more ugly pups. From ugliness to beauty, a Japanese poet with more than 100 poetry books published is among Japan's most famous modern poets. And at 90 years old, he remains inspired. 
Tanakawa's poem, Two Billion Light Years of Solitude, catapulted him to stardom in the early 1950s. Tanakawa was always in demand. He says poetry used to be work for him, but now it's more of a passion. It's like I'm writing poems because I have nothing else to do. Before, I wasn't really enjoying writing poems, but recently I've been spending a lot of time on writing, finding flaws and rewriting. As Tanakawa has grown older, he's noticed changes in his work. Sometimes I have a chance to read my poem I wrote a long time ago. When I read the poems I wrote when I was in my late teens, it is clearly different, such as vocabulary and writing styles. Poems naturally reflect on what I was thinking back then. I feel like I was so young and naive. For Tanakawa, the poetry is a celebration of the Japanese language. For me, the Japanese language is the ground. Like a plant, I place my roots, drink in the nutrients of Japanese language, sprouting leaves, flowers, and bearing fruit. Tanakawa stresses he is changing with age, noting 90 feels much older than 80. But for him, it's a natural part of life. The meaning of death was vague and abstract before, but now my body is moving toward death. You know, I'm hobbling around in many ways. I feel like I'm waning, although it doesn't necessarily mean I'm sick. It's a step toward death. In that sense, the meaning of death has become more clear than before. Tanakawa hopes to pass away as his father did, in his sleep after a night of partying, at 94 years old. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Well, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.